turn to Luke 15. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 32. So we're looking at the parable of the prodigal son today. And one of the reasons that I wanted to go through these particular three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, lost coin, and now the prodigal son, is because now, in, in, at least as far as long as I've been on this earth, is a time when the divide between the church and the non-church is as wide as it has ever been. And I think because there's some tension there, it would be very easy for us to assume that the non-church is just a non-church. But brothers and sisters, there are only two groups of people in the world. There's the church and the mission field. And see, that's the message of the, the three parables is they are the mission field. And the question is, how do you respond to the mission field? How do we think of the mission field? And I think we, we've kind of touched on that in the first two parables. I think today brings this to a very clear focus. It gives us a very clear idea of what's supposed to happen. So this parable, the prodigal son, is part of a trilogy, all related to uh, having um, the same three elements, the same three links. There's something lost, there's something found, and there's rejoicing that occurs when they're found. Uh, they're making the same point. And the point is, just so that we don't miss it, is it's about the lost. It's about the people that are not part of the family of God. It's about those people that have yet to uh, confess Jesus Christ as their Savior, and it, it, it would be easy to miss that point because there are so many good object lessons that we can learn in these things, and if it, it would be easy to miss the point if we didn't pay a high regard to the context. So last week, we found out the context was king, and just what that means, essentially, is that if you don't know the context the story's in, you're probably not going to get the point of the story. So the idea when we read the Bible is to read things in context. We can't just grab a verse here and grab a par paragraph there and make it mean whatever we want it to mean. We have to understand what the Bible's trying to teach us. In order to do that, we have to understand the context. We have to understand the context the sentence is in, the paragraph that sentence is in, the chapter that paragraph is in, the book that chapter is in, and the Bible that that book is in. So context is king. If we understand that, we're a long way towards understanding what the Bible said. So the context for all three of these parables is Jesus responding to the Pharisees who have accused him of consorting with sinners. He's sitting down and having a meal with sinners. Now, um, in the Jewish culture, we're going to talk a lot about the culture today, uh, that was seen as an intimate act. Uh, he was, he was uh, condoning them. He was, uh, I don't want to go so far as to say he was affirming them, not in their sins, but he was recognizing them as real people, and that caused some tension with the Pharisees. So each, each of these parables points out the neglect of the Pharisees to go out after the, the lost to move, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> to move out of their comfort zone and to go and bring the lost in, to, to, to go out after those who do not have a relationship with God. Now, this third parable, again, brings Jesus' point home. The title of this sermon is Stories That Changed the World, The Prodigal. And it has the same three links 
that the other two parables did. There's a lost son. The son is found. And then there's rejoicing when that occurs. But I think if we're going to understand the parable, it would serve us well to look at the three main characters in the parable rather than those, those common elements. They're certainly there, but I think the main characters tell us a bit, a bit more about what's going on. So here are the main characters. We have a disrespectful son. We have a self-righteous son. And we have a loving father. So we're going to take a look at all three of them. Let's start out by looking at the disrespectful son. And Jesus is speaking, uh, again, he's, he's speaking to the Pharisees, so we need to understand that. And verse 1, he says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property. Now, property shows up in this sentence a couple of times. Um, and this is one of, the, one of the things where a little bit of look, looking at the language will give us some insight as to what's going on. And in this particular point, the, the word is usia, okay? And it, it's, give me your stuff. Give me your possessions. And, and so he says, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, let me tell you what's happening. If a man had two sons, his estate would be split up between the two sons when he died. The older son, because he was older, would get two-thirds of the estate. The younger son would get one-third of the estate. Now, that would happen when, when he died. They had use of everything. They had use of the resources, but it didn't become theirs until the father died. The father had to pass along, uh, pass away in order for the inheritance to take place. It's a little bit of a will-type thing. Uh, that's just how it worked in the Jewish culture. And what the son is doing is he, he is insulting the father. He's gone to the father, and he said, I don't want to wait. I know that I'm supposed to get a third of the estate when you die, but you know what? I want it now. And the way the Jews would hear this is the son looking at the father and saying, you are dead to me. I don't care what happens to you. I want my share now. Now, not only is it insulting the father, but we have to understand the culture. This is a culture where honor meant so much more than it does to us. So if you dishonored your father, number one, you would shame yourself. But you would not just dishonor the father, you would dishonor the family. And if you dishonored the family, you dishonored the village that the family lived in. They were that tight. So this insult would spread out to the village. It would be a, a, a point of shame for the village. It would be a point of dishonor. And the father could have gone to the village and said, look what my son's done. He's brought shame upon all of us. And the village could have stoned the son. So that's how important honor was back then. You could die for it. And he, the father, divided his property. A different word for property this time is bios. And what it means here is his manner of life, the way he lived, his life's work. He gives him his share of the father's life's work. And he divides it up between them. Keep an eye on that one, okay? So in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, Sunago, and, and again, this is the idea of property, but the connotation here is that he sold it. He turned it into cash. 
He got as much money as he could for it. There was probably quite a bit. The, the man was well-to-do. We'll get to that. Okay? So, the son gathered all he had, turned it into cash, and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property, Usia again, his possessions, in reckless living. Now, there are some translations that do a little bit better justice to this, I think. The Holman Christian Bible says, where he squandered his estate in foolish living. And J.B. Phillips, in his translation of the New Testament, says, he squandered his wealth in the wildest extravagance. You know what he did? He turned his father's property into money and he went to Vegas. He got a penthouse at the Bellagio. He's ordering room service. He's down in the casino during the day. He's throwing $100 bills all over the place. And he's just, he's living the high life. This is what he wanted. His father had considerable resources. And he's just using them for his own pleasure. And it works out well. He's, he's a big man around town, except he's new in town, he's Jewish, and everybody understands that he's Jewish and understands part of the Jewish customs. I mean, he didn't go that far. So here's what happens. Take a look in verse 14. And when he had spent everything, see, he had no income. He's just living off his father's resources. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Now, Everybody is suffering in the country. There's no food. And there's no food for him because he has no money. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Now understand, again, we have to look at this culturally to understand the impact of what's happening here. He's a Jew living amongst Gentiles. To, to most Jews, that was offensive enough. But now he's got to go ask them for a job. And there's famine in the country, which means there's not a whole lot of commerce going on. So he hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Now, how many people know how significant that was to a Jewish young man? I mean, pigs were considered filthy animals. Now he's not only living amongst the Gentiles, but he's living amongst the pigs. So he's hitting a low point. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. I don't think the people, well, we don't know exactly what the people thought about it, but they knew he was Jewish. They probably understood the implications of him working for a Gentile and feeding pigs. But what do pigs eat? They eat slop. Anybody ever looked at pig slop? I know some of you have. Really not very edible. But let me ask you this. Have you ever been really hungry? I mean, when you get really hungry and your stomach's starting to growl and everything, things you would not normally eat start looking pretty good, don't they? I know when I get really hungry like that, I'm almost willing to eat pineapple pizza. <laughs> Vegetables, thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's how it is. So he's throwing this slop around. And he's going, oh, this is looking better than what I've got because I've got nothing. He's scraping the bottom. In verse 17, a transformation begins to occur. Something begins to dawn on him. He says, but when he came to himself, when he began to think clearly, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He's going, the guys that are working for my dad are doing a lot better than I am. They're eating, I'm starving. 
So he makes a decision, verse 18. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, this is significant. Look at the phrasing here. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's important. We'll get back to that. I'm no longer worthy. This man is contrite. He has been humbled. He's saying, I'm willing to go back and say, okay, I can't be a member of the family. What I did to you was inexcusable. I've embarrassed you in front of the community. I've shamed you. I've shamed our people. I've shamed our village. But I'm willing to come here. And can you just give me a job? Are you willing to let me work with the servants? Because I've got to tell you something. It's a step up from where I am now. And he arose and came to his father. Now, he made that decision. Watch this. He made that decision, but he had to act upon it. He had to do something. Some participation was required. He couldn't just sit there and go, gee, I'm really sorry. Maybe my dad will send me a letter and offer me a job. So, so it says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. There's that phrase again. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So there's our selfish son. He starts out, he's disrespectful. He's naive. He's somewhat foolish about the ways of the world. He gets a taste of the world. He thought the world had everything. He thought it had everything that he wanted was out there. And if he just had enough money, he'd be able to get part of it. And he ended up dejected and disappointed and empty and homeless. And he realized at that point how good he had it at home. How many of you have been through that experience? I was. 19 years old. Had a job making $250 a week. Had the world by the tail. Rent was a problem. It was 90 bucks a month. So I'm moving out. I'm going to go make my mark in the world. Things were fantastic. They were awesome for about three months. And I went, this is hard. <laughs> this is a lot harder than I thought it was. I mean, we've been through this experience, maybe not to this degree, but it's not easy out there on your own. God's got enough sense to come back to the Father. He's got enough sense to humble himself. He did the hard thing. He set aside his pride, and he he repented, didn't he? He repented. So we see that he wasn't. He wasn't a bad son. You know, he was just a young son. He was a young man that was prone to making bad decisions. Not that bad of a guy after all. But what about, what about this self-righteous son? Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. The man's older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. 
And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. So he's out there doing his part. He's working the farm. He's feeding the livestock and bushwhacking the, the, uh, the wheat and the hay and doing all that stuff that farmers do. And he comes home and there's noise. And he, so instead of going in to see what's going on, he grabs a servant and he says, hey, hey, what, what's going on here? And And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Now, you would think because he seems to be like a good son that he would go, this is fantastic. I'll bet dad is pleased. I know he's been worried. I know he's been looking for him. This is great news. Now, it should be doubly great news because the father has already divided the estate up between the older son and the younger son. He possesses the two-thirds of the estate. Doesn't have full control of it yet, but it's been promised to him. It's been preserved for him. So how does he react? 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. Again, culturally, we have to see what happened here. Okay, When the, the slave says he burned the, the, he's killed the fat, fattened calf, it, there's an indication, and I'll tell you why in just a little bit, that the whole community's there. The whole community's in the house. They're in the house. They're, they're trying to figure out what's going on with the younger son. Meanwhile, they see the older son outside the house and refusing to come in. This is an insult. It's an insult to refuse an invitation. And now, now the older son has insulted the father as well. There's shame involved with this. So he refused to go in, and his father came out and entreated him. The father came out and said, Come in. Why don't you come in? Don't you see what's going on? It's a celebration. Why don't you celebrate with us? Your brother's home. But he answered his father, and he said, he said, Dad, I'm about to reveal my true nature and character to you. He said, look, these many years... I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. So we find out that everything the young son has been doing is for himself. What is he getting out of this? You never did this for me, and now I'm upset. Then he says in verse 30, the ultimate insult, the slap to his father's face. But when this son of yours came, those of you that are married, have you ever, have you ever had just a little bit of tension over the kids? <laughs> Thank you. I mean, what happens during those conversations? We hear things like, well, your daughter just did this. No, your son just did this. And we try to distance ourselves from responsibility, from the relationship, because we don't want to be related to to that particular action. See, that's what he's doing here. He said, your son. He doesn't say, my brother. He doesn't say, your beloved son. This is dripping with sarcasm and bitterness. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The older son is worse. 
Everything he did was for himself. There's no honor for the father. There's no compassion, no mercy, no love for the brother. No regard for the entire community that is assembled there. He is selfish. He is self-consumed. He is unable because of his selfishness and his being self-consumed. He is unable, watch this, to share in the blessings of the Father. He's unable to partake of the blessings that the Father has for him. Well, let's talk about the Father. Look at how he responds to the disrespecting son. We're going to go back uh, to, on a couple verses here. In verse 12, and the younger man said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Insults the father, insults the family, insults the community. How does the father respond? He divided his property between them. Instead of punishment, instead of getting stoned, the father exhibits grace. He gives him what he asked for. So the son takes it away. He loses it all. And in verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, I love this verse. This is not a verse that we're going to set our theology and doctrine on. God is not running after you. I know there's a great song about God running after you. But the scripture says that God draws us towards him. Okay? But the picture that we need to see here is this. The father is a pillar of the community. He's a man of some resources. He probably has a long robe on. It's probably pretty expensive. In order for him to run, he has to hike that robe up and go running through the village. And the villagers would see him. They'd go, what's the old guy doing now? They would look in the direction he was running and see the sun coming down the road and go, look, the sun's coming back. That guy that shamed him, that guy that embarrassed him, that guy that has brought dishonor to this entire village is coming back, and he's running out to greet him. What's happening here? And he's got a smile on his face. And he kissed him. The father humbles himself. The community sees this son as an outcast, as being unworthy of being part of the family of God. And the father risks his reputation and his dignity to greet the son and to receive him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, we've seen that phrase a couple of times. And it's important the way that is arranged. He says, I've sinned before heaven and before you. The young man knew the nature of sin. Now, look, when, when we sin against each other, if, if I sin against Scott, uh, and it bothers me, I would probably go to Scott and say, would you forgive me for sinning? And there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay. But it denies the nature of sin. You see, God is trying to form us into his image. He's trying to conform us and, and sanctify us and make us holy and draw us closer and closer to him. And when we sin, brothers and sisters, the very first offense that we commit is against our Father in heaven not against our brothers and sisters. 
young boy had come to understand that his sin was a violation of God's holiness. It was a violation of everything that he professed to be as a follower of God. So he understood that the very first repentance that has to take place is repentance towards God. Without that, there can be no restoration. There can be no reunion. He got that. He said, I've sinned before heaven and I've sinned before you, Father. He got everything cleaned up. He took care of everything he needed to take care of. And so now he's standing before the Father and he's saying, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. All I want is a job. Can you put me in with the slaves? Look what happens. But the father said to his servants, verse 22, bring quickly the best robe. That's probably the father's robe. The best robe in a house would belong to the father. He said, clothe him in my clothing and put it on him and put a ring on his hand. Now the ring conveys the authority of the father. He's saying, put my robe on him, show everybody what I think of him, put the ring on him, show him that he has the authority that belongs to this family, and shoes on his feet. And now the difference between a servant and a member of the family was a servant went barefoot, and a member of the family wore sandals. See what the father just did? Put every indication on this young man that he is received back into my family and carries all of the blessing and all of the privilege and all the authority of being my son. Then he says, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. How many times do we see fattened calves in the scriptures? It's there pretty frequently, isn't it? You know what it is? There was always, it, it, depending on how many livestock you had, there was always one or two or three animals around that you had taken care of exceptionally well they were fed well they were had the nicest stall in the barn uh the they were cared for well and they were kept for very special occasions for very special celebrations for weddings significant life events and see this is how we know that the community was there because if it was just for the family that family couldn't eat a calf they would have killed a lamb, they may, maybe a goat. But they killed a calf and brought the entire community in. The best of the best for his friends and his family. He said, let us eat and celebrate. In verse 24, he said, for this my son, why celebrate? For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. How does he react to the prodigal son? Everything he does is an expression of grace. Everything he does is an expression of mercy. Okay, so what about the self-righteous son? How does he react to them? Now, I'm thinking, if I'm writing the story, he's going to go slap him. Okay, you kick him. What's wrong with you? Didn't I raise you better than that? Okay, look what happens. The son won't come in. Insults the father, insults the community. He says in verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. He goes out and he says, no, come on in. He doesn't gather the community around to stone him. Again, we see grace. 
The son responds negatively, insults the father yet even further, and, and, and the father exhibits more grace. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. He said, look, you haven't lost anything. You still have two-thirds of the estate. It's been kept for you. It will go to you when I die. In verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Don't you see the magnitude of what's happened here? Don't you see, son, that if he can change, if he can be transformed by his confession and his repentance, maybe you can too. The son doesn't see it. Well, we don't know how it ends. But notice this. Just a couple of big picture things. The younger son comes into the family. The the outcast becomes a member of the family. The older son refuses to enter. He refuses to join the family. Meanwhile, the father exhibits nothing but grace and love throughout the entire ordeal. In our story, two of the people have undergone transformation. The bad son is now the one who humbles himself and is embraced. And the one who appeared to be the good son by his own actions, by his own attitude, remains an outcast. He's on the outside. But there's a third character. It's the father. He never changes. He's the same at the beginning of the story, the same at the end of the story. So what do we learn from this? Now remember, context is king. Jesus is still speaking to the Pharisees. Every one of these is about the Pharisees and their attitude. And if we understand that, then when you understand that the Pharisees themselves, they're the son who is self-righteous. They're the ones that are too prideful to go to the outcasts. They're the ones that get angry when somebody outside the family receives a blessing. The prodigal is the, the one who is self-righteous, the, the ones that the self-righteous ones call sinners. So they would sit there and go, why would that boy be blessed? So that's one thing we could see. Another thing we could see that the, the, the self-righteous can exclude themselves from the blessings of the Father. They can remove themselves from the blessings of the Father by making poor choices. Now, the Pharisees have been listening pretty carefully. And they seem to understand that Jesus is talking about them. And we don't, we don't know that until the next chapter. There's another, another parable. But in chapter 16, we see the Pharisees' response to these parables. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, this is in verse 14, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. They never lost their self-righteousness. You know what the ridicule was? You've got a lot of nerve coming in here thinking you can teach us something. Don't you recognize that we are the religious elite? We are the teachers? Who are you? Jesus of Nazareth. We know who your father was. Really saying, we know you don't have a father. You've got a lot of nerve coming in here thinking you can dress us down. Their own self-righteousness has blinded them to the truth. Okay, well, that's another thing we could see. 
take a look at these three parables in the overview again. And take a look at the fact that the shepherd in the first parable who left the flock and went to get the one sheep, the woman in the second parable about the coin who tore everything apart to find the one coin, and the father and the third all undertake a risk. They all set aside what would seem logical and what would seem practical. And they do things that would not be advisable. But those risks, they're, they're essential to our understanding of these three parables. Because these are not parables of practicality. They're not parables of what to do in this situation. They're parables about seeking the lost and God's singular joy in the redemption of the lost. Heaven rejoices. In the first two parables, the sheep and the coin do nothing to be found. Their recovery depends entirely on the initiative of the one who goes to seek them. And in the third, the father doesn't go after the son. Watch this. The son doesn't have to seek the father. He knows where the father is. He knows where his home is. When he encounters the father, what does he do? When he comes face to face with the father, he realizes where his sin is and he confesses. He repents. And upon that repentance, he is restored. Do you realize how close restoration is? Do you realize how important the repentance is? If you came in here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, all you have to do is confess. All you have to do is repent, and you will be restored into a relationship with the Father. That's a good lesson. Amen? We see three strategies. The shepherd goes out looking for the lost sheep. The woman tears everything apart to uncover the lost coin. The father waits for the son while the oldest son loses the blessings in anger. What does that have to do with us? Because, see, we look at these parables and we think, oh, God's the shepherd, God's the woman, God is the father. No, 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 brothers and sisters. The shepherd and the woman and the father are us. It's us. We're called to go looking for the lost. Now we know that. We know that that's why the church is here. But watch this. We're also called to do everything we can to uncover those who are lost in our own house. We preach the gospel not just to those out there, but to ourselves as well. And when that happens... The Father receives us with joy. And there's rejoicing in heaven. And we should rejoice whenever the lost are found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for this incredible story of a father who is gracious and merciful and loving and willing and able and ready to forgive. Help us to embrace this truth. Help us to walk in it, Father. Help us to do our part in reaching out to those who don't know him. In looking upon them as the mission field, Father. Not as the subject of tension or oppression, but as opportunities to share 
the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.